Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. I want to talk today about a great controversy in post-war Britain, uh, which was a controversy about what to add to the drinking water that came out of the domestic tap and how much of it to add. Now, if you are so minded, you can, in these technologically informed days, you can you can uh, go for more of this if you would like to follow me on Twitter, which you can see up there. And you can, of course, in these, uh, in these days where one's research director is obsessed with outreach and academic environment and impact, follow my blog, uh, which you can also see listed here, which is called Public Policy and the Past. Although I warn you that over the last few months, this is mainly concerned how accurate with how accurate opinion polling is. So if you like lots of data about how accurate opinion polls are or not accurate, then you can go to these. Uh, whereas you know, one can listen on for, to talk about fluoride for the next 40, 45 minutes. Um, the first strange thing, I think, about writing a book, which, as you've heard, I am doing, about water in post-war Britain, is that one would not think that Britain... Uh, as a, a very exposed Atlantic archipelago, would have a particularly acute politics of water because it is extremely damp. Enough water falls from the sky in the United Kingdom to pretty much quite cheaply keep its people in clean domestic water, even to flush their toilets. So drinking quality water, even to flush our toilets with, which is a kind of super abundance of water. Although that is not always, of course, and not everywhere, the case. So, although Britain has an extremely long coastline, although it, it looks outwards to the sea in many parts here in the, in the city of Edinburgh, uh, nearly most of all, it also is a country with a, a very differential access to water and a very, a very different climate in different parts. So, of course, uh, as you know yourselves, essentially east dry, extremely dry in East Anglia in England, uh, and west extremely wet, especially in northern Wales, one of the wettest places in Europe, in Snowdonia. So what I set out to do in the book, and I'll come on to fluoride in a minute, was to think about why water became a touchstone of British politics in the late 20th century, in the post-Second World War era. And one reason was the emergence of a politics of the environment which treated the environment as a, a single organic geographical whole and a series of problems that were related one to another and could be seen as one set of problems distinct from, for instance, transport politics or economic politics or national politics, etc. And one way this emerged, I think, was the way in which environmental politics, which had always been the politics of the city the politics of polluted water in cities, the politics especially of polluted air from factories in cities, moved away from this emphasis on the urban and the problems of the urban as it had emerged in the Victorian era and moved towards uh, a more wholehearted look at, for instance, regions. Regions particularly important in water because we go from the, the waterhead, we go from the, the well in the mountains and the hills down into the estuary. And, of course, Britain is a particularly geographically estuarial place. It's made up of estuaries. 
This is the Labour Party's quite famous pamphlet on po- the politics of the environment, which they went into the 1970 UK general election uh, fighting on because they thought they, they required a, a new kind of look at the kind of green politics that was emerging in this period. And in 1970, one can see that the problems of the environment are still seen as peculiarly urban, they're still seen as peculiarly about the decline of and the dirt of and the debris of the smokestack industries that had, for the most part, built Victorian Britain's prosperity. However, at the same time, there was the emergence of the idea of the region and the, and the city region as a single system. And this is from the year before's Labour Party document called Taken for Granted, which was the Labour Party's look at the water supplies of Britain's cities, uh, not just as what comes out of the tap, but as, for instance, amenity, as, for instance, uh, filled-in gravel pits for yacht clubs and and windsurfing clubs, for instance, canals as canal boating areas. And what I think we see is an an increased emphasis on the the region and the uh, area as a system, as an organic system where the water cycle from well, river, estuary, back into the cloud, back into sky, and then back into the water system gains a hold. And we can talk in questions perhaps about the reasons why this might be. But I just wanted to fit the politics of fluoride into a wider politics of water that was emerging in the 1960s and 70s. Politics of water is not only important because there is a a different idea of the water system emerging, it's also important because although plenty of water falls from the sky in the United Kingdom, not a great deal of it got into uh, domestic homes, domestic houses, as we are now familiar with it after the rise of the shower and the daily shower from the 1970s onwards, after the rise of the mixer tap, the daily bath since the 1960s. A great deal of a great deal of British housing did not have hot water as late as the 1970s. In the 1950s, probably the majority of British housing did not have hot water upstairs and downstairs as of the norm. Uh, and as we can all uh, read about in novels, look at in our own histories, look at in our family histories, plenty of houses had only hot water in one point, or in terms of very, very low down the income scale, even in the 1950s and 60s, no hot water at all, that you didn't simply boil on the hob, you didn't boil, or a big electrical breakthrough in the kitchen, there'd be a small uh, kitchen boiler above the tap, a kind of a sadio, a radio um, uh, water heater above the main kitchen tap. And that politics was extremely gendered, because most of the work done uh, with domestic hot water was still done by women. Instead, it's still done by women, about 60-70% of it. And that involved a huge amount of backbreaking work, lugging, for instance, in terms of domestic service, huge amounts of cold water from a standpipe uh, tap at the bottom of a tenement building or a bottom of a block of flats, lugging it up to your employer's flats, four or five uh, staircases up, and then having to heat it up. That's a huge amount of really, really uh, difficult physical work. So it's a, this is a, a Labour Party pamphlet from the 1950s talking about council housing as really a, a, a council housing as the future, council housing as the way in which hot water will be brought into the home and into every home by the beneficence of, of state planning. Now, to turn to fluoride in the drinking water, fluoride in the drinking water is the 
the product or the uh, a phenomenon based in a peculiar particular public health crisis as perceived in uh, Whitehall and in Edinburgh uh, to a lesser extent actually in Belfast and, and latterly Cardiff after the creation of the Welsh office in 64. It's the creation of a crisis of, in shorthand, a big wave of sugar hitting children's uh, physiological systems and in particular hitting their teeth. Now, it's not just sugar that creates a big crisis of dental caries, uh, basically uh, big holes in children's teeth uh, from the Latin for for decay in in children's teeth that's doing this. It's also uh, a big increase in the amount of carbohydrates uh, and especially uh, white bread in the diet, but it's mainly to do with increased sugar, not just increased sugar in sweets, although that's the trope, I'll come back to that in a minute, that's the kind of image of it in the public's mind, but also a great deal of increased sugar in, for instance, ironically, the free uh, orange juice given to children, or in fruit juices in particular, because they're from concentrate, they're not from press. So you concentrate a huge amount of sugar, as well as you concentrate a huge amount of vitamin C, the emphasis on the vitamin C, only latterly does the increase in the sugar intake uh, be seen as problematical. And as we see there, there's a drop in the number of children with, without any holes in them, without any decay, from 22% to 13% in just 10 years, 1948 to 1958. Now, this latterly drops away again, as we can see, for instance, in the top left in the Scandinavian countries, and we can see in, in Britain also in the right-hand table, DMFT is just decayed, missing-filled teeth. It's just a measure of how much damage sugar has done and to a lesser extent starch and carbohydrates have done to children's teeth. So the, the, the very simple story to take away from this is that there's a big peak in tooth decay in the 1950s caused by a transition of the household economy and to some extent the moral economy to extreme affluence compared to, of course, what came before, which was a long period of economic crisis really beginning in 1919 and not really abating till 1950, 51, 52. These are just measures here from uh, the scientific literature of the increase in sugar and then the damage to teeth. Uh, not quite linear in the, in the left-hand one. These are evidence from Japan. And the reason they're evidence from Japan is that Japan is a country that, uh, in particular, experiences a large dietary and a, and a very rapid dietary transition between the 1930s and the 1960s, really to do with Americanization of the diet and to do with a move away from traditional ways of eating to particularly eating more meat, of course. Uh, and what the left-hand one shows is basically a big increase as you eat more sugar in terms of the number of holes in children's teeth after the years of eruption, one, one to five of the years when their first teeth come out. second one shows a rather more linear relationship between the number of uh, damaged, damaged holes in the teeth to the amount of sugar consumed. I don't think it's a particularly controversial scientific finding, although I'm not going to talk about the science of it today. Not a particularly controversial scientific finding that a great big wave of sugar hits British children's teeth, and then there's a huge amount of worry about what this might mean for their dental health. Um, I'll go on to talk again a little bit more about this later, but what this is also is a great moral fear and a great familial fear about... The conditions of restraint under superabundance, uh, which the economic historian Avner Offer has uh, written about, the, the challenge of affluence, his really, really good book on how do you restrain yourself 
from, for instance, in my case, kind of eating the whole Easter egg in one go? How do you restrain yourself when all the Easter eggs this week only cost a pound in the co-op? How do you restrain yourself uh, when a can of Coca-Cola is, uh, in this period, uh, in the 1950s, really, really cheap? tiny amount of the household budget, when in the 1930s, even basic foodstuffs are a much larger part of the household budget. That's an extremely worrying element of governors' thoughts in the 1950s. And, of course, that, that, that moves across into all kinds of worries. How should young people behave? Is it worrying that they're going to coffee bars and meeting people from the opposite sex? What will the effect of more widespread contraception be? How will people control themselves? What will the effect of huge amounts more meat in the diet be, etc., etc., etc.? So how do we control ourselves? One way is uh, through propaganda and, and education. And these are just examples of central office information and the Ministry of Health posters, obviously English Ministry of Health posters from the 1950s and 1960s with some advice, although, of course, the advice changes. You're supposed to... Uh, brush your teeth before breakfast now, not after breakfast, apparently. This is the latest guidance. But anyway, education is one way which the British state thinks the people's, the people's difficulty with um, restraint under superabundance will be controlled. Another way will be to scientifically intervene in people's diets and scientifically intervene in people's lives in order to, in fact, help them. And we can see these kind of ideas from the promise of atomic power in the 1950s, which holds out the promise of enormously cheap and plentiful energy. Of course, we know the story doesn't really end like that. All the way through to intervening in what comes out of the domestic water tap. Um, these are measures of reduced numbers of tooth decay scores in children if, you, if natural fluoride is present in the area they live or if you add fluoride to their drinking water. And again, although there is a great deal of legitimate controversy about the effects of fluoride in the water, it does not seem to be controversial that it does reduce the number of tooth decay damages to the teeth in the mouth among the children. However, what we see in the left-hand score is, of course, this is a plot of three areas in England which, have, uh, which are not high-income areas, they're mostly low-income areas, and Ward John's score is a score of social deprivation by Ward. And the tooth decay by the 1990s, which is when this BMJ data is from, tooth decay goes up the, more, the poorer you are. Um, and one of the reasons I would suggest, I think, that the pressure for fluoridisation goes away and the emphasis in Whitehall and Westminster on fluoridation uh, abates is that the, the tooth decay crisis increasingly gets limited and squeezed into essentially poorer Britain's families. And the general crisis of the 1950s abates. Uh, it's usually one part per million you add to the water supply. It's usually one part per million or a little bit more if it's naturally occurring. Of course, it's a salt in the water supply being washed off the water table if it naturally occurs. And the benefits from it usually plateau, usually uh, decrease getting better after about two parts per million. And we can see this experiment again in a series of countries. So there is a great deal of evidence that this is at least efficacious, although there may well be drawbacks to fluoridising the water supply, as I'll end with. 
The reason, another reason why this crisis abates in the 1970s and 80s is that more and more people use fluoride toothpaste and less and less, but as it were, increasing numbers, use very fluoridised um, mouthwash to brush their teeth and to treat their mouths after meals, maybe two or three times a day, which will enormously reduce your, uh, your children's uh, exposure to tooth decay. And however you choose to do that, you choose to uh, treat your children in this way, whereas, as we'll come to, the objection of the anti-fluoride campaigners is that you have no choice if all of the water that comes out of the tap is fluoridised. And, of course, you can reduce or increase the fluoride dose your children are getting by putting a little pee on the toothbrush uh, or a huge amount on the, on the, on the toothbrush, and you can, you can use or not use um, uh, fluoride mouthwashes. But a couple of reasons there why this crisis goes away, this controversy abates. But I want now to turn to the, rather the core of the, the talk in the, in the middle of it, which is to say, what was this crisis like and what was it really about, this great debate about fluoride? Well, lots of American scholars have written about the great fluoride debate. There's a huge number of books and articles about this, there's a big, great big historiography about this, lots of, lots of literature. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, I, I'll just isolate two. The first is that a lot of American historiography can go state by state, uh, a little bit like Amer the American welfare states' experiments, both in the 1930s and the 1990s, is that states can experiment and look at, uh, essentially, very American phrase, what works, very Rooseveltian phrase, what works. And there's lots of histories of state-by-state -state, uh, fluoride intervention. Second reason is that much more American water is fluoridized, much more. Um, and third reason, I think, is, that, is the nature of the American state, which actually, despite our internal intuition and our, our trope of the United States as an extremely free market economy, is actually an extraordinarily interventionist economy, especially during the Cold War. Uh, and actually, the state takes up a greater share of GDP in the United States in many, in, in, on many measures than it does in the UK. Obviously, of course, partly defence spending, but also the United States government is extremely interventionist. There is a Cold War aspect to this, of course, which is that you want your people to be healthier than the Soviet people. But we don't really have, uh, don't really have time to go into that. So presumably so they have better teeth so they can go into space and eat the kind of space food more, with, with more pleasure. Um, this is normally, this row, this debate is normally conceptualised around Das Ulrich Beck, the German uh, social science philosopher, perhaps historian. And it's normally conceptualised, this debate, in the terms of what he calls the risk society. Now, the risk society is the debate between citizens who are informed with perhaps grassroots citizens' knowledge and perhaps emergent, perhaps quite um, layman's terms, uh, slide rules of, of science informed by the press, informed by their social networks, especially now online social networks, and the so-called experts, in fact, so-called experts of science, who rely on that well-known arbiter of truth, double-blind, peer-reviewed academic journals, which, of course, never have anything in them which, which are untrue. Um, and the, the Beck essentially writes about that clash as a clash of two cultures, which is a very useful and, and important way of seeing that, that debate between, for instance, uh, in this case, dentists and, and, and anti-fluoride campaigners. Almost all dentists are incredibly keen on, on fluoride because, of course, they look into these mouths every day which are, 
ravaged by the use of sugar and fizzy drinks, and they want to, they want to prevent that with, with solutions and science. But a lot of people have, for instance, and we can see this in the contemporary anti-vaccination movement, a very different way of understanding, which is that they look at their small child, in many ways their tiny child, and they think, I don't want to put vaccination in that tiny body. I don't want to put fluoride in that tiny body. It doesn't make sense to me. It feels counterintuitive. And those two ways of seeing, ways of speaking, are at variance, and they're very difficult to have an argument uh, one against the other, because they're in a different register. And they use different languages, different modes of feeling and thinking. So that's uh, one way of thinking about this. And the very, very good academic article, which I can point you to if you'd like, which I think is available for free, actually, on, 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 online, which is Amy Whipple's article in 20th Century British History, which is about just this clash. So that's the best thing published, uh, if I may say, at the moment <laughs> uh, on this. And uh, it's a very, very good article. It is too. Um, and there's lots of evidence for this. Lots of evidence for this. British government tries to do a series of field experiments, which is exactly what you do in our, in our science mode, isn't it? OK, what we need to do is a series of uh, field trials. And a series of field trials set up, I think it's three in England, one in Scotland, different areas, different social profiles, different kind of water, soft water, hard water, etc., etc. Chief scientific officer, tick. Let's sign off on that. Unfortunately for the fluoridizers, the local people of these areas, for instance in Andover, a very young and expanding town full of children down there in Hampshire, and Norwich, again, a rapidly expanding city, about to become a university city in the, in the, in the 60s, object to this extremely violently. And in fact, the town council in Andover is overturned. The Conservative and Labour members of the town council in Andover get swept away by an anti-fluoridisation movement led by the, the local vicar and his wife, who are also extremely outspoken opponents of uh, Princess Margaret's marriage and are extremely uh, worried about the effects of marijuana on youth. So you can see the kind of moral kind of, uh, um, kind of discourse where this is coming from. Um, and essentially what these campaigners are worried about is a sinister state intervention in children's bodies. But not only that, because cleaning the water using, for instance, chlorine, in, which came in during the First World War in, in uh, Surrey and Middlesex, is not seen as particularly sinister because it makes the water purer. It's adding a medication to the water, which is the particular element of fear on behalf of these grassroots activists. And so, therefore, we can see these two literatures, these two discourses of Beck's kind of conflicting and, and clashing. Um, and we, what we can also see is... Quite rightly, Beck's catastrophist interpretation uh, of the risk society. Because, for instance, uh, green campaigners in this period are beginning to gear up in the 60s and 70s about nuclear power and its dangers. And at Three Mile Island, at Chernobyl, we're about to see catastrophic dangers exposed. So there's a big bang, if you'll forgive the pun about those two uh, terrible disasters, there's a big bang worry about... Um, essentially science in this period, which is that it's too powerful and that its effects could be, even though the risk of something going wrong is very small, they could be absolutely disastrous. And the great shadow that hangs over this is the shadow of thalidomide, the thalidomide drug given to pregnant women in the um, 1950s, which leads to huge amount of birth uh, changes in children that uh, small arms, small legs, different shapes, all sorts of different um, and shapes children 
and, of course, a great deal of enormous distress on the part of parents and children and a great deal of, of fear about where this is, initially, where this has come from. Um, and the um, public health authorities, for instance, the medical officers of health, who are the people who are charged with local public health, just as in England they are today, again, after the Lansley Act in 2011-2012, um, leads, leads the public health authorities essentially to worry about the scaremongering as they see it, and that's the title of the talk, um, completely inadmissible and cruel. Essentially, public health authorities think, well, you're just being uh, cruel because you're raising people's fears about what will happen if they drink the tap water. You're causing a panic. The public cannot be trusted not to panic. The public cannot be, uh, can, public cannot be worried. They should, not be, they should be informed by the requisite authorities rather than the, um, rather than the popular knowledge that Beck talks about. It's his other culture of, of science. And ministers, as a Conservative minister and a Labour minister, Enoch Powell, who was Minister of Health in, in, in England in the early 60s, and Richard Crossman, who was Secretary of State for Health and Social, Sci- uh, Social Services in the late 60s, essentially treat the anti-fluoride um, campaigners as cranks. Crossman calls them the flat earthers in the space age. So essentially, you people are backward. You know nothing, and you are obstructionist of the most powerful idea, of course, of the 1960s, that era of the white heat in the 100th year of of Harold Wilson's birth, the idea of the future, the idea of science as inevitably progressive, which Fledermite had punched a great big hole in. The reply of the anti-fluoridizers, I think, is is that the state is becoming too big. And there is a great deal, I think, of emergent work in history writing about this, which we don't really know much about, about the, the anti, anti-busybody campaigns, anti-government campaigns, the state is too big campaigns, tax refusal campaigns. And, of course, what I think is the shadow in the background is the shadow of uh, fascist and Nazi medical experimentation, which, of course, has just been revealed just 10 to 15 years before. And... What will that be done on? It will be done on children and old people, the most vulnerable people in society. There's a, there's a stereotypical worker on, at the back there to the left, but I think to the centre stage of the anti-fluoridisation movement's campaigns is, is the figure of the, the elderly and the figure especially of the, of the child. The child who is exposed to state intervention, which essentially is illegitimate, is illegitimate for the state to monitor your child too closely. Now, this is a very um, powerful, very frightening uh, set of propaganda and does a good, de- does a good job of blunting the fluoridisation movement's um, success. When in doubt, be cautious. Now, uh, that's a very, very successful, um, very successful message in advertising and marketing. If you look at uh, any kind of campaign in the last... Uh, any kind of campaign I've looked at focus grouping for the last sort of 15, 20 years, frightening people is much more successful than, in, than inculcating uh, potential, potentiality of hope in them. Fright of fear is, is, it works. Um, in response, the, the state's uh, literature propaganda is extremely, often extremely boring. Now, this, compared to this, is going to lose. Because it is official, it, it has an extremely boring font, uh, Sorry, it's a lexicographical point. And um, it's an extreme muddy colour. 
Um, so uh, essentially, I think the Ministry of Health is, is just way behind the grassroots activism of the anti-fluoridizers. These are from Andover, the aforementioned uh, Hampshire uh, growing town. And what the fear is in the National Pure Water Association, the NPWA here, is, and you can see it actually explicitly, the government of 1984. If you give up your powers to a government, the government of Mr Crossman and Mr Powell, well, that might be fine because they're very well-intentioned and they're very, very good secretaries of state, uh, very well-ordered, and, and they can be trusted to obey the law. And, of course, they, they both can. But uh, what, what happens next? What kind of government? You can't plan for what kind of government's going to come in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. And if you can compulsorily medicate people, what will they do? And one can see these very powerful and emotive fears uh, really, really working at the grassroots level. But I want to, as I move to the end of the talk, problematise and kind of worry about this kind of Beck typology of popular knowledge, scientific knowledge, because I think it's... a, a well, we were boring old historians would say this, wouldn't we? But I think it's rather more complicated than that. Because when we talk about anti-statism, I think the thing that comes into mind immediately, especially we're going to see this in the 1970s and 1980s, is a kind of libertarian uh, right-wing state anti-statism that says that the government's got too big uh, and that's inefficient, a kind of Friedmanite or a Thatcherite view of the state, which is that the state's doing too much. But I think there's also a left or a centre variant of this anti-statism as well, which comes out of the Second World War, which is about uh, socially connected networks of citizens who should do things for themselves. Now, although that cadence is present in the Thatcherite discourse in the 1970s and 80s, it's in a, a more minor key than it is in the left. And what we see, I think, is... Um, and we can see this, for instance, in Anthony Crossland's revisionist socialist work, is a great uh, tiredness with greyness, with rationing, with controls, and with essentially puritanical ordering of society, which essentially says, why shouldn't socialism be huge amounts of Coca-Cola? Why shouldn't socialism be loads of white bread? Because the people love it. And that connected to very different ideas about smallholding, about allotments, about the land and growing your own food, which on the surface seem very different, form an enormous left front against fluoridisation as well. I think if we... To, one, one way that I try to see this is a kind of um, the, the leftness and the rightness of this anti-fluoridisation movement is that it's helpful in some ways to see this as a kind of proto-UKIP which appealed in the 2010-2015 general elections from left to extreme right of voters. And when you see voters' preferences, you see voters in that camp from the very left, very right. So I see this as a kind of... I think that's sometimes a helpful way of seeing this. And essentially, they're both the same in that they're revolts against the centre and that they're revolts against expertise and being told what to do. They're also revolts against capitalism. Um... This is um, consumer activist James Rorty, consumer activist, travel writer, and general all-round American polymath James Rorty, who basically says, and this theme is picked up in Britain a lot, fluoride is a, is a byproduct of the aluminium industry. Essentially, all the fluoride movement in the world is, is a kind of dumping ground for aluminium, the aluminium industry's fluoride, and you're just capitalist stooges for taking it. Now, God forbid that this, this idea should become a trope on Facebook or Twitter, 
but it would spread enormously like wildfire. And it's exactly the kind of uh, ersatz knowledge that does it gain, a, gain an enormously powerful hold in those kind of social networks very, very quickly. Another uh, left front, incidentally we see this very strongly in Canada and Quebec, is the, is the whole food and the real food movement. Doris Grant, who baked the kind of brown loaf that won the war, is a massive anti-fluoridizer. Uh, and so is the Health for All magazine, the kind of proto-green, proto-homeopathy, kind of, a kind of alternative medicine magazine of choice of the kind of quinoa classes, the kind of lentil classes of the 1960s. Um, the whole food movement, the real food movement, and the brown bread movement are also connected, deeply connected to the anti-fluoride movement because they're seen as more natural and they're seen as less adulterated. They're seen as better for you. Now, of course, in many ways, brown bread is much better for you. Uh, it's certainly much better for one's bowel. But that's not really what I think is going on here. I think what's going on here is, is, is an objection to the idea of the artificial and the idea of the artificial as efficient, robotic, cybernetic, a kind of new society that will, that will turn uh, humanity, which is quite chaotic and quite vociferous, into something that's uh, very, um, very square and very linear and very um, controlled. The Labour Party is, is uh, vitiated by anti-fluoridizers. And the big anti-fluoridizer, the leader of the National Pure Water Association, Douglas Balak, is, uh, who'd been governor of Malta, who'd been a kind of minor Labour minister, he's a Labour peer. And the Labour peers and constituency Labour parties are much more subject to anti-fluoride entryism than the Conservative Party. And so is the Liberal Party. Now, of course, in many ways, as, as we see today, constituency Labour parties are subject to uh, influxes of enthusiasts, uh, influxes of people who have a series of causes that they string together in a single narrative. And anti-fluoridization is one of these, I think, in the 1960s and 1970s. And it's... So what I'm doing is I'm shifting the frame from a kind of right-wing anti-statist view that the government's too big, which definitely is there, and I'm shifting the frame to say there are lots of streams of thought on the left which are also anti-fluoridizing as well. Uh, something else that we need to do is to shift the focus away from quite boring and I think quite staid left-right uh, paradigms of politics, which are, you know, that's only one way of seeing the world. Only politics enthusiasts or sort of obsessives like myself see the world in left-right terms, almost no one else does. We need to see the world in terms of gender, and it's, and it's almost always women, just like the vicar's wife, Mrs Makin at, at Andover, who are leading these anti-Florida campaigns. It's the British Housewives League, it's the Scottish Housewives, it's the, the idea of defending the home, defending the child's body, and defending the pregnant woman's body are very, very close to the heart of the anti-fluoridizers. Also, bizarrely, the, the fluoridization campaign, hopefully I thought this would be topical, fluoridization is seen as something uniquely, uniquely that the EEC, the European Economic Community, is keen on and must therefore be a kind of foreign-imposed evil coming from outside from Brussels and Strasbourg. The Housewives League is extremely anti-EU in the 1960s and 70s for reasons it's uh, perhaps too long-winded to go into. I've accept my word for this. Um, uh, Bob Cartland, that, you know, one of the most successful authors of the 20th century and a uh, famous uh, socialite from the 1930s to 1950s and a famous romantic novelist. Can we, Britain, can we women of Britain allow this? 
can we women of Britain allow something which might cross the placenta and go down the, uh, the umbilical cord into our bodies? Is it right for the state to interfere in the most holy of links? And I use the word holy deliberately because plenty of churchmen are against fertilisation as well. The most holy of links, the link between mother and, and son or daughter. Um, and that's, a very, again, a very, very powerful discourse which is very persuasive to a majority of Britons. Um, lastly, I think, um, in terms of just shifting the frame of this debate... I don't think it's just about popular knowledge versus scientific knowledge. I think there are scientific knowledges in clash that, that are clashing, and scientific knowledges with different claims. And the parallel I would use is, for instance, today in today's EU referendum debate, huge lists of economists or huge lists of businessmen on both sides, listed in the newspapers or listed on the BBC, and then the voter and the layperson just thinks, well, who can you trust? How am I supposed to know? And in fact, of course, it's, it's illogical. In Kenneth Arrow, the great economist's terms, it's illogical to educate yourself to, to actually know because it will take too much of your time. So what you should do is seek someone trustworthy and listen to them. But the problem is, who is trustworthy? And that's a real problem if you don't know who to listen to. There are dentists who are against fluoridisation because they say it causes mottled teeth. It causes cosmetic problems with your teeth. And there is some evidence of that. And there are a series of, inverted commas, experts in the United States who use a flurry of semi-useful statistics to link fluoridisation of the water supply with Down syndrome, which, of course, again, is very frightening to parents. How is one supposed to know when someone is a doctor, when someone has a, a post at a university, whether they're telling you the truth or whether they're using the right science or not? Very, very difficult. The government does fight back, but it fights back at one remove. It fights back through the councils of health education in the nations of the UK. These are much, much better than the Ministry of Health's efforts. Much more colourful, much more evocative, much more likely to make you think, well, I want my children to have lovely teeth. And this one, not too bad either. This is true of our children's teeth. They have the worst teeth in the world. And, of course, as you probably know, this is the era when the trope of the British person with the terrible teeth gains a hold in the United States. And the one thing most Americans know about Brits in the 50s, 60s, 70s is they probably have terrible teeth. Um, and there's a kind of um, techno-nationalism to that, which is we need to have good teeth like everybody else, like French people or Germans, uh, and to compete with them just as we compete in terms of making cars. Um, I think the reason fluoridisation, I'll come to the, at the end, I'll talk about how much fluoridisation actually gets going, but the reason um, it doesn't gain hold is that the British state is very fragmented in the post-war era. The, in, despite the image that the welfare state and the, the warfare state, because of course defence sector is still very, very big, are very controlling, they're not. It's very difficult to get things done, just as it is now. And the impulses going out from Whitehall are frustrated, because mainly because Powell, as health, health secretary, goes to Conservative MPs in 61, 62 and wants to legislate, and Conservative MPs just say at a period of great difficulty for that Conservative government, as it looked like it might break up, uh, no way, we've got enough problems. You're not legislating about this because we'll basically be inundated with a tsunami of letters in green ink. Um, and Powell backs off, he's got enough problems uh, trying to keep with the uh, EEC um, entry admissions. What they do is they allow local councils, local authorities, to take the lead 
And essentially what that does is it dumps the problem in the lap of your local council people. And that's great because it makes the problem go away for the politicians. But the problem is, both in English and Scottish local government in the 1960s, the borders of the water companies and the different councils that want and do not want fluoridation are not contingent. They, are, they, they overlap. And the example I would use from my own home university is Oxford. Oxford City, Oxford County Council, Vale of White Horse Council, uh, Thames Water, City Waterworks, they are all at variance and they, do, and they do not agree. In that case, you are in a convoy system where you are going at the speed of the slowest. And for a great deal of the United Kingdom, fluoridisation is simply not going to happen because localism frustrates it. And, of course, that feeds right into the grassroots mechanisms of the anti-fluoridisers' movements. So what we get in the end is the fluoridisation areas in blue in England and Wales, essentially Birmingham and the North East and a few other areas like uh, that's North Ants. And the grey areas that are naturally fluoridised. And in Scotland, there are only four areas ever fluoridised, and that's brought juddering to a halt by the famous Jauncey uh, case in the 1980s, where the Scottish High Court says it's illegal. You can't fluoridise the water. Because the only thing in the Act, in the 45 Water Act and the 1980 Water Act, that it says is to secure a wholesome supply. Well, you've secured a wholesome supply. The water's perfectly fine. You, can't, you do not have the powers to add more. And in Scottish law, that brings the whole system to an end. So there's no fluoridisation from the uh, mid-80s, late-80s in Scotland, apart from Morrisha, which has naturally occurring uh, up there in the north northeast, which has naturally occurring fluoride, which are coloured in alarmingly red, which should probably be blue, so it's less worrying kind of propaganda. Um, Although the Scottish Parliament, uh, under its previous uh, Labour Liberal Democrat administration in 2004, does consider fluoridation again, basically that is also frustrated by a huge wave of petitioning, emailing, letter writing, which is almost uniformly hostile from the Scottish public. So 2,000, 3,000 letters uh, against. What the coalition government does again in 2010 in England and Wales, and then latterly in England, is again it dumps this on the health authorities that are responsible for public health now in England and you get a series of hand-to-hand battles in the English regions about whether fluoridisation should happen. None of these schemes have gone ahead but they are pending in and battled about in Southampton, in Hull, in uh, other parts of England. So this battle is, is still with us and it's still there. To conclude... I think that it would be easy to tell a story of a big state faced by a sequence of proto-Thatcherite libertarians who oppose the welfare state and oppose fluoridisation as one element in the welfare state, the uh, almost literally, in this case, the nanny state, and say, well, um, you can put fluoride toothpaste on, on your children's gums and teeth and you can feed them less white bread, and that's your choice, and that's much better than being forced to imbibe fluoride. And that clearly is one of the things that's going on here. It's no accident in terms of its Toryism that the National Pure Water Association is based in Thames Ditton, which is probably in Surrey, the epicentre of Toryism in, in northwestern Europe. However, I think that the, the roots of the anti-fluoride movement are actually much, much deeper and more, more interesting and more vociferous than that. And I think that they come from across the political spectrum, and they really are entwined with ideas of what is natural, 
The idea of brown bread is a good one there. The idea of what is creation, what is the creation of a good citizen, and of course the National Pure Water Association is a very good example of what it is to be a good citizen, because one is associating with your peers in a political campaign which the government is trying to encourage, but then is faced with actual opponents wielding its own weapons against it in a kind of, if you'll forgive the phrase, big society. Um, it's associated with the nascent green movement, which essentially is saying that you shouldn't take chemicals into your body, that you shouldn't drink, uh, that yes, you shouldn't drink fizzy drinks, you shouldn't drink sugary drinks, but neither should you eat adulterated foods. Almost all health food um, shop owners and catalogue um, suppliers, because of course these foods are sold by catalogue in this period, are anti-fluoride. And I think you can see why, which is that they see this as an artificial impost on the body. Often this is a movement associated especially with women at a time when women were trying to carve out a series of areas in the public sphere which was problematical because lots of women were qualifying in lots of spheres and the workplace and the political uh, arena was still rather conservative about their role. So one way this was finding a voice was in ideas about, very crudely, and it's a sexist way of seeing it, but ideas about the family and the home. And the defence of the family and the home were seen as particularly female politics in this period. The divide lay not between parties on a left-right axis, but among parties. Between, I think, people who emphasised control and progress and science, and those who emphasised freedom, organicism and citizenship. And that's a very, very difficult um, debate to have, and an insoluble one if you're faced with, in this period, two essentially monolithic Westminster parties. It was, I think, despite Beck's very useful typology of scientific knowledge versus popular knowledge, and the catastrophist threat of scientific disaster, um, most uh, best uh, examined through histories of thalidomide, it was actually about different claims to scientific knowledge within medicine, within dentistry, within um, science, within statistics. Because, of course, recent reviews of fluoridising the water supply, for instance, a Cochrane review of the literature over in 2011 and 2014, have shown actually that probably the effects of fluoride have been slightly exaggerated, and there might be some health risks of fluoride, even if only cosmetic. So instead of a debate between the rational... And the irrational, I think that what we do with this is explore post-war Britain via fluoridisation as a very complicated political landscape where all sorts of ideas about what it was to be a citizen, a parent, a man, a woman, a governor, and to be thoughtful and to take part in politics were in flux and were clashing. But with that, I think I will end. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.